When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Episode 35, Three Royal Brothers. Athelwolf's will attests to his desire that upon his death, Wessex would pass into the hands of his sons. This desire was fulfilled when his eldest surviving son, Athelbald, became king following his father's death in 858. The years that passed between this succession and the rise of the youngest son, Alfred, to the throne in 871 would see a complex détente form between the four brothers as Wessex rapidly passed from one to another. Histories of Wessex tend to overlook the years between Athelwulf and Alfred, preferring to focus instead on Alfred, his father and his grandfather, to give a sense of a simple progression of a united Wessex developing into a united kingdom of England. However, the reigns of Alfred's three older brothers deserve to be discussed in detail, since it is under them that several key factors in Alfred's reign fully emerge into West Saxon history, such as the transition from Scandinavian raiding into Scandinavian conquest, and the alliance with Mercia, both of which would bear fruit in Alfred's reign and shape the earliest form of the Kingdom of England. Following Athelwolf's death in 858, the crown of a once again united Wessex, passed to his rebellious son, Athelbald, while Kent was ruled over by his next youngest son, Athelbert. With Athelwulf dead, Athelbald was faced with the challenge of ruling a kingdom that he had recently brought to the edge of civil war. As a way of securing his prestige, Athelbald made the decision to marry his father's young, widowed bride, Judith, and thereby secure the prestige of a son-in-law to the Emperor Charles the Bald. The marriage of Athelbald to his stepmother is treated quite differently in our three surviving sources for it. In the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, it isn't mentioned at all, possibly so as not to draw attention to its prestige at the expense of King Alfred. In Asser's Life of King Alfred, on the other hand, Athelbald is castigated for the marriage for committing a grave sin that even pagans didn't countenance. A much less hostile view is found in the Frankish Annals of Saint-Bertin, which note the marriage without condemning any of the parties involved. That the Franks didn't see any issue with the match can be inferred from the treatment Judith received when she returned to Francia following Athelbald's death in 860. She was treated as a queen, suggesting that her marriage to her stepson was not seen as particularly dishonourable. Despite near-contemporary silence on the match, in the long run, historians adopted Asser's view of Athelbald, which was overwhelmingly negative, due both to his marriage to Judith and to his rebellion against Athelwulf. His brief reign was presented as a lawless one, and he as a grasping and nefarious king right up until the early 20th century. 
It wasn't until Frank Stenton published his classic history of Anglo-Saxon England in 1943 that Athelbald's brief reign began to be treated with some impartiality. To be clear, no one argues that Athelbald was an especially good king, only that his marriage did not arouse general scandal, and that his reign on the whole was too brief to have left much of a footprint. It did leave some trace, though. There are two surviving charters from his reign. One issued in 858 is a grant by Bishop Swithin of Winchester of land at Farnham to Athelbald, as well as a pledge by Athelbald that the land will return to Winchester upon his death. Barbara York suggests that this is a sign of Athelbald's confiscating land from the church for his own use. But if that was something the king was prone to, then we would expect more outrage about it on the part of churchmen who wrote most of our sources, since violating church lands always provoked retribution from ecclesiastics. It seems rather that the 858 charter, if it is genuine, reflects some kind of agreement between Swithin and Athelbald, the authenticity of the charter is often doubted, but I have included it here on the basis of Simon Cain's defence of it, since he is certainly the world expert on Anglo-Saxon charters. The only other surviving charter from Athelbald's reign comes from 860, and is a grant of land at Tefton in Wiltshire, from the king to his thane Osmond. It is on the whole unremarkable, except for an attestation by King Athelbert of Kent, indicating good relations between Athelbald and his brother, as well as an attestation by Judith, who witnesses the 858 charter also, a fact which is unusual in West Saxon history, since queens usually did not witness their husband's charters. That Judith did so suggests that Athelbald continued the plan arranged by his father for Judith to be more exalted than the usual West Saxon queen. No coins survive from Athelbald's reign, the Southampton Mint didn't produce many coins during the mid-9th century, and the mints at Canterbury and Rochester produced coins for Athelbert rather than Athelbald. There are three coins surviving which purport to be the work of Athelbald, but these are now generally recognised as forgeries, and so have no bearing on the actual history of the period. And thus exhausts the surviving evidence for Athelbald's reign, as you can see, there isn't very much to go on, but none of it really suggests that he was an especially bad king, as Asa suggests. Rather, he was just a very short-lived one. Exactly how short-lived is a matter of debate, though. In the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, the entry for Athelbald's death in 860 says that he reigned in Wessex for five years, beginning when Athelwulf left for Rome. Asa, though, says that Athelbald reigned for only two and a half years, beginning with the death of Athelwulf. In this, we see two different attitudes to West Saxon kingship. The chronicler seems to have held that Athelwulf abdicated the throne when he left Wessex for Rome, and thus although he doesn't say this, Athelwulf's return and subsequent reign in Wessex were illegitimate. Asser, though, out of a desire to minimise Athelbald's reign, held that Athelwulf's second reign was legitimate. It's interesting to speculate on why this difference exists. Both sources were created under the influence of King Alfred, but while the Chronicle was at least trying to be a dry account of events, Asser was deliberately writing an encomium to his lord, an encomium being a type of praise literature meant to glorify its subject. 
Although this is speculation on my part, I suspect that Asser saw in Athelbald both a potential challenge to Alfred's prestige on account of his marriage to Judith, and a potential inspiration for rebellion. So he strove to present Athelbald in as negative a light as possible, by presenting him as a traitor and a sinner. The Chronicle, on the other hand, did not have this aim, so while he didn't mention the marriage to Judith, the Chronicler also didn't mention the rebellion, and seems instead to have adhered to the standard understanding of the time, that once a king left his kingdom, he gave up his right to rule. Obviously, the Chronicler would not speak ill of Alfred's father, but the implication is clear, that Athelwulf overstepped his bounds by returning when Athelbald had become the legitimate king of Wessex. Asser, on the other hand, espoused a view more akin to the divine right of kings, in which Athelwulf was the legitimate king of Wessex, even while not resident in the kingdom, a view that it is unlikely that others held at the time. The idea of a divine right to rule goes back ultimately to ancient Israel and to ancient Rome, and it became established both in Carolingian Francia and in 7th century Ireland, but among the Anglo-Saxons it seems to have become accepted only after the reign of Alfred. In Asser, though, we clearly see a nascent version of it. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Hello listener, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I just wanted to let you know that if you enjoy what I'm doing here, then it really helps me when you leave a review or a rating on the podcast provider you're using to listen to this, when you subscribe to the show's YouTube channel, or when you become a supporter over on Patreon, where you can get access to bonus episodes, ad-free episodes, and transcripts for as little as $3 a month. And speaking of patrons... I want to give a shout out to Nick Clark and David C. Mace, who recently became patrons. Thank you so much for your support, and I hope you are enjoying the extra material you now have access to. Anyway, back to the show. After Athelbald's death, his oldest brother Athelbert ascended to the throne. Athelbert had been ruling as sub-king of Kent since his father's trip to Rome, but upon becoming king in 860, he broke with the now-established tradition of setting up an heir as ruler in Kent. Instead, Athelbert opted to rule both Wessex and Kent as a single kingdom. This is reflected by a charter he issued in 860, granting land in Kent to Bishop Wehrmund. In this charter, we see something extraordinary that was not seen again until the reign of Alfred, 
we see all the bishops of Wessex and Kent, as well as the aldermen of both kingdoms, witnessing together under a king who styles himself as both King of Wessex and of Kent. As Simon Keynes says, this is an extraordinary level of unification when seen in contrast with other West Saxon charters. It seems, though, to have been only short-lived, since all other charters issued by Athelbert again divide Wessex and Kent into separate realms of authority. Athelbert's relation to his siblings seems to have been generally good, since his younger brothers, Ethelred and Alfred, are frequently made objects of pledges of loyalty alongside Athelbert. This has led some historians to suggest that the three brothers worked out a plan for each to succeed the other, although it is unclear whether this was so, and under Ethelred, it seems that this plan, if it existed at all, began to break down somewhat. However, under Athelbert, these good relations continued. Another charter of Athelbert's reign stands out as important. This one was issued in 864, and granted land to the bishopric of Sherborne. The chief interest of this charter is that it was written entirely in Old English rather than Latin. Usually by this point, the charter was written mostly in Latin, but with the bounds or the borders of the land given being described in Old English, presumably so that it could be more easily understood by an audience of laity who could not comprehend Latin. Exactly why this Sherborne charter was written in Old English is unclear, since none of Athelbert's other charters were. Historians tend to offer two explanations. One is that it reflects more acceptance of the vernacular as a language used in a legal context. The other, based mainly on claims made by Alfred much later, is that it indicates the decline in the knowledge of Latin, which he claimed plagued the 9th century church. If this was so, then why is only one of Athelbert's charters written exclusively in Old English, and why do none of the others show a special trouble composing in Latin, something that, as I'll talk about in future episodes about Alfred's Renaissance, we have clear evidence for at places like Canterbury. Similar questions can be raised about the idea that Old English was being used more frequently in official settings. Why this charter in particular was composed in this way is unknown, and we're unlikely to ever know for certain. There's also an account in the charter, unusual again in Anglo-Saxon charters, describing its creation in which Athelbert allegedly placed it on the high altar at Sherborne as a way to consecrate it. Again, why this charter in particular has so much information that seemingly sets it apart from all the others it produced during the Anglo-Saxon period is something that we don't really know. But it raises interesting questions about the nature of Wessex during Athelbert's reign. If the Sherborne Charter echoes trends that would become particularly prominent during the reign of Alfred, another trend that we see really emerging fully in Wessex during Athelbert's reign that would come to really haunt his youngest brother is that of Viking raids. There are two instances of Viking raiding which make up the sole entries of Athelbert's reign in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Both the beginning and the end of his reign coincide with attacks, one in 860 on Winchester and one in 864 on Eastern Kent, neither of which the chronicler claims Athelbert had any role in repelling. Aside from these attacks, though, the chronicle claims that Athelbert's reign was a peaceful one, 
However, some historians suggest that this vaguely positive image of Athelbert's reign was meant to contrast with the king's absence when repelling invaders, with the overall goal of Alfred's partisans being to downplay Athelbert's successes. This is speculative though, and it seems somewhat at odds with the good relations that Alfred seemingly enjoyed with his brothers. Certainly, even more so than Athelbald, it is frustrating how little our sources tell us about Athelbert, particularly how Viking activity in the 860s impacted Wessex under his reign. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. Following Athelbert's death in 865, his brother Ethelred became king. It is also in this year that the great heathen army of Scandinavian raiders landed in Kent. If you'll think back to the last Northumbria and Mercia episodes, the great heathen army was something of a wrecking ball which smashed through all the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms between 865 and 878. In other words, it was an inauspicious time for Ethelred to become king, although of course he didn't know that. 
He did get a brief reprieve from their aggression though, since after ravaging Kent, the Vikings travelled to East Anglia and proceeded to spend much of the period from 865 to 870 obliterating the kingdoms north of the Thames. We'll come back to them shortly. At some point after his accession in 865, Ethelred married a woman named Wolfthrith. Unlike Judith, Wolfthrith held a fairly low status common to West Saxon queens. We only know her name because she witnessed one charter in 868 as Wolfthrith Regina, but other than that we know nothing about her, except that she bore two sons, Athelhelm and Athelwald, the latter of whom would become a thorn in the side of Alfred's only son, Edward, upon his becoming king in 899. The birth of Ethelred's sons, seemingly the first sons born to any of the sons of Athelwulf, is the first sign that during Ethelred's reign, some tensions began to emerge between the king and his youngest brother. At a meeting of the Witan, Alfred asked Ethelred to give him his share of his father's bequest. If you'll recall, Athelwulf had stipulated that this bequest was to be passed between his sons as they died. Ethelred rebuked Alfred, saying that it was too difficult to divide up his lands, and would instead give the entirety of the bequests to Alfred after his death. This promise was certainly complicated by the birth of Ethelred's sons. The decision to identify Wolfthrith as queen in 868 may suggest that Ethelred was working to set up his sons as heirs to the throne, a situation which would leave Alfred without any bequest. In fact, when Alfred succeeded Ethelred in 871, partisans of Ethelred's sons argued that Alfred should divide his lands with them. In response, Alfred had his father's will read at the Witan to prove that he was justified in keeping all of the lands for himself as his father's bequest. Despite Athelwulf's desire that his sons would succeed him as King of Wessex, it seems that Ethelred's progeny raised a hitherto unposed question about whether or not the kingdom would pass from Ethelred to his brother, or if it would pass along more traditional lines between Ethelred and his sons. Possibly the only thing that stopped his sons from taking up arms against their uncle is that they were probably still infants at the time of their father's death, meaning that they were unable to do it. However, it is under Ethelred that the detente between the sons of Athelwulf seems to have finally crumbled, which, to be fair, was probably always inevitable, but it's remarkable that it lasted for as long as it did. Internationally, Ethelred allied Wessex with Mercia, his sister was the Mercian queen, and Ethelred sought to establish closer relations with his brother-in-law, Burgred. This is reflected particularly in his coinage, which soon after his accession, Ethelred deliberately reformed to stylistically resemble that of the Mercians. After the redesign of the West Saxon coinage, we begin to see Mercian coins appear in West Saxon coin hoards, indicating that with the redesign also came closer economic cooperation between the two kingdoms. The result was essentially the first unified coinage in England, which, despite being minted by two different kings, aesthetically promoted the idea that Wessex and Mercia were united by their cultural and economic interests. This alliance was possibly promoted by the massive successes of the great heathen army north of the Thames. The same successes probably also resulted in its being as short-lived as it was. 
since in 869 the great heathen army turned its sights again to Wessex. It's worth asking what makes this army different from Viking raiders who had been a feature of Anglo-Saxon history since 793. Simply the main difference is that where previous raiders plundered and left, the great heathen army was more of an invading force, which actively destroyed kingdoms and then established settlers in the rubble. Its early tactics did involve simple strong-arming to get payment, but when kings inevitably got tired of this extortion, the army, rather than moving on, would often overthrow them and set up puppet rulers who were more amenable to their demands. Thus, where Viking raiders would simply prey on the existing structures of English society, the great heathen army would actively unmake and then rebuild them in a way that would suit them and essentially create a occupying colonial force. Through Ethelred's ties to Mercia, he did get pulled into war with the great heathen army before they began to actively invade Wessex. When they occupied Nottingham in 687, for example, Burgred appealed to Wessex for help in removing them. Ethelred and Alfred led an army north to join with the Mercians, but even this combined force could not dislodge the Vikings from the city, and eventually Burgred agreed to pay them off, at which point they returned to Northumbria. It was in 870, though, that the invaders turned their attention back to Wessex proper. After invading and destroying East Anglia the year before, in December of 870, they sent a force to invade Wessex. Their force, led by two Danes named Bagsedge and Halfdan, captured Reading and set about building fortifications there. They faced stiff opposition from the local Aldermen, Athelwulf, who with his force of local levies successfully hampered the Danes' ability to forage food from the surrounding countryside by defeating them in a battle at a place called Englefield. Four days later, in early January 871, the main West Saxon force arrived led by Ethelred and Alfred, and upon joining up with Athelwulf and his men, they launched an attack on Reading. This resulted in a bloody defeat for the West Saxons, with Athelwulf being killed, and the king and his brother being forced to retreat to Windsor. Sensing opportunity, Bagsedge and Halfdan pursued the West Saxons, and the two armies fought again at a place called Ashdown. This time, things went badly for the Danes, with Bagsedge and many other notable Danes being killed, and Halfdan being forced to retreat back to Reading. According to Asser's account, the Vikings deployed along the top of a ridge, giving them the advantage, and divided their forces into two contingents, one under their two kings and one under their earls. The West Saxons decided to copy the formation, with Ethelred facing the kings and Alfred the earls. Ethelred then went to Mass, while Alfred led his forces to the battlefield. Both sides formed a shield wall. Alfred, conscious that he was at risk of being outflanked and overwhelmed by the Danes, decided to attack and led his men in a charge. Ethelred chose not to join the battle until the West Saxons had the upper hand, probably so that in the event of a defeat, Wessex would not be left kingless. Fortunately though, the battle turned out in Wessex's favour. After the victory at Ashdown though, the West Saxons suffered at least two more defeats by the Vikings between January and April 871, one at Basing in Berkshire and another at an unidentified place called Meryton. Shortly after Easter, which fell on the 15th of April in 871, Ethelred died, seemingly of natural causes. Since his two sons were still infants, Alfred succeeded to the throne. 
However, there was no respite from the encroachment of the Danes, since while the new king attended his brother's funeral at Wimborne in Dorset, the West Saxons suffered another defeat at Reading. The new king was faced with the prospect of driving the invaders out of Wessex, lest the kingdom be destroyed just as so many others had been. Although Alfred is remembered today as the Great, the only English king ever given that title, in 871 things looked dire, not just for Wessex, but for all of England, and the fate of a free England now rested entirely on the shoulders of Athelwulf's bookish youngest son. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. If you have, I'd like to remind you to please like, comment, subscribe on whatever platform you use to listen to this. And if you're able to, supporting the show over at Patreon really helps us a lot and you get some great bonus material in return. But for right now, thank you for listening. I've been your host, Tom Kearns, and I hope you'll join us again for the next episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.